it's just interesting an interesting time for us isn't it as as a nation as a church at the moment i think we we recognize these are unprecedented times and uh, and even doing church in this really strange way is is a whole new thing for each and every one of us and um, but but it, it's great that we have the technology to be able to connect with one another uh, to be able to still share a time of worship together and uh, and we're even going to do communion in our own homes together a little bit later on um, I, I just want to say before we get into where we go in today as well um, don't be surprised by strange emotions that you might be feeling um, in these times I, I think this has been a gradual gradual thing where we've gone from relatively normal life to the point where most of us are being told we're only allowed out of our homes once a day for exercise and then for some essential supplies every now and then that that was not something any of us expected a few months ago and so it, it's perfectly normal to experience some strange feelings of frustration anxiety fear at this point i think we have to learn to be honest with ourselves and honest with god about how we're coping with these things i think even you know just me this week to be completely honest I've found myself with really strange feelings and emotions about this whole situation. Um, I, I just, I don't know what to make of it. And I'm finding myself reacting to things differently to how I normally would. And uh, and I think I just want to say that's okay. You know, for all of us, there is permission to be honest and to be real um, with God and with one another. And if you find yourself just in a in a complete mess you don't know what to do with yourself, pick up the phone and give someone a ring, whether it's someone, you know, in the church office on the pastoral team, or it's just a friend. Um, let's just be open and honest with one another. Uh, so today, uh, we are going to be continuing with our Passion Week series that we've been in for the last few weeks now. Um, the, the the talk today um, is all about the events of the Last Supper, but I wonder uh, if you have ever seen the film The Proposal, um, we, Rona and I were just talking about this uh, film this morning and uh, and she absolutely loves it. We, we've enjoyed watching that a couple of times together. And essentially in this film, what you have is Sandra Bullock plays the main character. She uh, is a successful business person. She's a Canadian living in America. And one day gets the news that she is going to be deported by the immigration officials. And on the spot, she comes up with an idea. And her, her idea is um, to pretend to build a lie around um, her relationship with her assistant. She basically says, no, we're engaged. And, um, and therefore, I can stay in America. Her hapless assistant, played by Ryan Reynolds, um, is... Uh, it, it goes along with this kind of reluctantly at first, but then uh, he agrees to do it only on his terms, which will include uh, a very humorous trip to where his family live in uh, in Alaska. He's very oddball family. And uh, and so they go along with this and it's very it's a very amusing film. Um, but essentially, at the heart of it is this impromptu proposal uh, right at the start where, where the character played by Sandra Bullock is thinking on her feet and comes up with a solution and there and then makes this proposal uh, that she is engaged to uh, her hapless assistant. 
And today, I, I want to try and draw out for us something that might not be so obvious to us uh, it, on initial glance at the events of the Last Supper. But I believe there is hidden within there the subtlety of a proposal that Jesus is making to his friends, to his disciples, and that he is also making to us. I believe that there is an invitation within the, the Last Supper, Jesus offering the bread and the wine to his friends that is being made to us today. And to help us to get there today, it helps us to understand um, the, the context around a first century um, Jewish wedding uh, tradition and what that would have looked like. And um, so throughout this talk, I'm going to be comparing um, because the New Testament is, is pretty blatant in one of the metaphors that the New Testament uses to talk about the relationship between Jesus and the church is one of marriage between Jesus, the groom, and the church, the bride. This is a metaphor used throughout the New Testament to help us understand the nature of the relationship between the church, between you and I, and the entire worldwide church, and Jesus, who is the bridegroom. And so I'm going to just compare the first century Jewish tradition of a, a kind of marriage, and then that with Jesus and humanity, the church. So the first thing that would happen in a first century Jewish wedding is the man would take the initiative. So if he had identified, and obviously parents were sometimes involved in this, but when he identified the woman that he wished to marry, uh, he would take the initiative. He would be living with his parents at the time, and he would travel to the home of his his wife to be to where she would be living with her parents he would take the initiative and he would go to uh, the bride's father's home now if you compare that to Jesus Jesus as the groom takes the initiative he is the one who who travels from his father's home he is seated on high at the right hand of the father god and he travels to us, to our home, to earth. We know that from the Christmas story 2,000 years ago, Jesus uh, came from his home to our home here. He is the one who takes the initiative. And why did he do it? Because he loves us. That's why Jesus went through what he went through. That's why he took the initiative. That's why he travelled from his home to our home because of love for us. He wanted a relationship with us, just like that groom, that man wanted a relationship uh, with the woman, uh, the home he goes to uh, of the woman. It's because he loves her, wants a relationship with her. The next thing that would happen in a first century Jewish wedding uh, is that is this. He would then have to negotiate with the father of the woman he loved he would have to negotiate a price um, that he needed to pay. This was a custom at the time that we're not necessarily used to. Um, I certainly didn't pay uh, Rona's father um, to, for her hand in marriage. In fact, he contributed in quite a significant way to the marriage, uh, to the wedding, certainly. But, um, but, but this is what would happen. The groom would go, he would go to the father, he would negotiate a price, and then he would pay that price 
in a similar way, Jesus to secure the, the love and a covenant marriage with the church knew that a price would need to be paid. We know that that price is just around the corner. When we come to the events of Passion Week, when we come to this event of the Last Supper, we know that Jesus is going to pay the ultimate price to secure the people he wants that relationship with. He is going to lay down his life. There is no greater love that, than can be shown than by laying down your life for someone else. And Jesus is going to do that. That is 24 hours after this Last Supper, Jesus has paid the ultimate price with his life. Now, what would happen in a first century Jewish wedding next is that once this had been agreed, the price and the price had been paid, the father of the bride, or potentially a rabbi, if there was a rabbi on hand, would actually take a cup of wine, like I have here, just pretend it's wine and not slow gin. And, uh, and, and the rabbi or the father of the bride would take the cup. And what they would do is they would give thanks for the cup. They would use these words. They would say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine, a very traditional Jewish prayer of thanks for the wine. Then what the, the rabbi or the father would do is they would pass the cup to the man. He would pass it to the woman he wished to marry. And, uh, and, and the, the man would then offer it to the woman he wishes to marry. And interestingly, the thing I, I came across was that there's an author called Anne Voskamp who tells a story about how she, um, she, was, she heard a, a, a Jewish rabbi, a contemporary Jewish rabbi, not, not a believer in Jesus, but somebody, he was just talking through the customs of a first century Jewish wedding. And this is what he said would have been said by the, by the groom, by the man at the point he wishes to propose to, uh, to the, the woman of his dreams, he would say this, he would say, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I offer to you. Now, does that sound familiar? If we turn in our Bibles, if you've got your Bibles, it should come on the screen as well below me. But Matthew 26, verse, starting at verse 17, is where we read this moment where Jesus takes a cup and some bread, and he offers it to his friends. Let's read from verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? <coughs> Excuse me. As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared them Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one in turn asked, am I the one Lord? He replied, one of you has just uh, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. He's telling his disciples at this point, look, this is the price I am willing to pay. If I'm the groom in this situation, 
I know that there is a price to be paid to to win you to me, to to enter into this covenant relationship. And he says, I am going to die just as the scriptures declared long ago. And then he says, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It will be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. Can you guess what prayer of thanks Jesus would have said at this point? In all likelihood, it would have been that same one said at a first century Jewish wedding. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the wine. Then he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it, it new with you in my father's kingdom. Then he sang a song and then they sang a, a hymn, sorry, and went out to the mount of olives. Can you see the similar similarities here? A, a, a groom, a man proposing to a woman in, in first century Israel would have taken a cup, offered it to her and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I offer to you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, takes the cup, offers it to his friends and says, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people wrapped up here in the last supper as we would now know it i believe that jesus is making an offer to his disciples he's proposing to them he's enacting some of the symbolism and the words and and the actions of a first century jewish proposal he is inviting them to relationship with him to intimacy with him to a covenant relationship with him now when he offers this wine this cup of wine to the woman he wishes to marry by way of accepting his invitation she takes a drink from it she passes it back to him and he then drinks from it himself now they're betrothed that's the status they now have it's different to our culture where if you propose to somebody that you are now engaged in Jewish custom, you would now be betrothed. This is a different thing. They're not married yet, um, but they have established a new contract, a new covenant. They are, they are in a committed relationship to one another. Interestingly, this is the point at which we would find Mary and Joseph. When they, when, you know, when the, the, uh, the angel Gabriel comes and tells Mary that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and when Joseph finds out about this, do you remember what he does? He says, um, or, or the, the narrative tells us that he, his idea, his initial idea was to divorce her quietly. They weren't married at this point. They were betrothed. 
And it would have taken a divorce to kind of annul a betrothal because a contract has been established. They're not married, but they are now in a covenant relationship promised to one another. What would happen next is the groom would then give a ring to the woman as a sign of that commitment. And then the strange thing happens. You would think, oh, great, they're in, you know, what happens next? They they move in together. They get married really quickly. No, interestingly, what happens next is the groom then leaves and he goes back to his father's house uh, and, and leaves the woman in her father's house. Both of them at this point are preparing themselves uh, for marriage. This is a season of preparation. Uh, For the man's part, mainly his main task is to create a place for his wife to come and live, normally by creating new accommodations within his father's house. Does that sound familiar? Jesus Our groom, having proposed and now being betrothed in a new covenant, creating a new covenant with his disciples, with his church, what does he do? (laughs) He leaves. You know, after his death and his resurrection, after he's paid that price, you might think, and I'm sure the disciples thought it as well, you know, oh, great, this is it now, Jesus, we're we're together. You, You know, you've come back to life. But Jesus says, no, I must go away and prepare a place for you. We read about this in John Uh, chapter 14, verse two to three. This is what Jesus said to them. He'd forewarned them. This is even before uh, the Last Supper. Uh, He says this. He says, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you when everything is ready? I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way, the way to where I am going. Jesus does exactly the same as a groom. He leaves to prepare a place for us in his father's house. And then what happens? Well, there's a lot of waiting and preparing. For the bride, she is now waiting confidently that her groom will come back to take her uh, to live in their new home together but she does not know when this happens she is confident that it will happen but she doesn't know when that will actually happen it's a bit like us isn't it we're waiting for jesus to return he has promised that he is going to be coming back for us to take us home to be with him We are confident. We know it will happen. We're waiting in the midst of our relationship with him and we have a covenant with him. But we know that one day he will return. We just don't know when that is going to happen. We're waiting for him to return and to take us home to be with him and his father. Now, after a period of separation in a Jewish first century wedding, normally around about a year, the groom would return. And he comes to take his bride home to be with him. Usually this would happen at night. Uh, The groom would gather his his groomsmen, his friends. They would all light their torches and they would travel through uh, the the village, the town or to the next town, wherever his bride-to-be lived. They would process. She would be waiting with her friends, with her bridesmaids, not knowing Um, not knowing when it's going to happen, expecting him 
but not knowing when. So there would be a loud shout that would be given to, to signal that he was on his way. They would shout ahead so she could know that he was coming and she could be ready. Interestingly, we read in Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching. This comes just before the passage we've read in the, uh, the Last Supper. And Jesus tells a parable. It's a parable to help his friends uh, know what to do in this waiting period that will come after he ascends and before he returns. And he uses the imagery again of a Jewish wedding. He talks about the readiness of bridesmaids. I'm going to read it through Matthew 25, starting at verse one. Jesus says this, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the five were, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet them. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. Apparently olive oil is on the essential items list that you're allowed during lockdown to go and purchase. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch for you do not know the day or hour of my return. Jesus himself is confirming to us <laughs> that, that our relationship with him is like that between a groom and a bride in a first century context. You get all of that, don't you, within that passage, given as an example of the bridegroom coming in the night, looking for his bride and his bridesmaids who need to be ready, don't know when he's coming. They shout to herald their arrival. And Jesus is trying to help us now. We're in that moment, aren't we, of waiting. When will Jesus return? He's trying to help us uh, to, to be watchful. That's his encouragement to us. You do not know the day hour but keep watch be prepared now what happens here from this point on you got a little bit of the context there even within that parable parable uh, not parable parable uh, the groom would then return to his father's house with his bride in tow they would go together with the groomsmen and the bridesmaids and they would return to the groom's father's house where their guests would all be ready and waiting for them. Now, an interesting little thing happens here, which I'm really glad isn't part of our um, kind of marriage culture today. The bride and groom, the man and wife, are escorted on arrival into what was called the hooper um, or kind of bridal chamber, uh, some kind of like tent-like structure. While all of the guests are waiting um, for the feast to begin to celebrate their, their marriage, these two are escorted in there. And because there are children watching, I'm not going to go into the detail of what would happen in there. However, these this couple, this man and wife, they are physically and spiritually united as one. And then they come out. Hi, guests. <laughs> 
Guess what just happened in there? They come out and what happens now? They are man and wife. Their marriage is complete and they party. They feast and they drink normally for seven days straight with all of their friends, all of their families. Uh, together, they celebrate this uniting together as one. Does that sound familiar to you? Let's read Revelation 19, because this is where things are headed. When Jesus returns and takes us home to be with him, we read about this in Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 6. Then this is John, one of Jesus's uh, disciples, his closest disciple. He's seen a vision of the future of what's going to happen. And this is what he describes. And uh, pictorially in the in the book of Revelation, Jesus is presented as a lamb, a lamb who a perfect lamb who has laid down his life um, so that we can be united with God. So he's known as the, the lamb. And this is what John writes. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for what? For the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride, the church has prepared herself She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. That's where things are headed. The culmination of Jesus, the Lamb, the Groom, and the church, his bride, a wedding feast that everyone is invited to, where there will be celebration, the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty oceans or the cr crash of loud thunder, vast halls of people celebrating because they have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what happens next after this party? Well, the, the, the husband and wife, as they now are, they are fully married. They, they enter into a relationship, a full relationship of intimacy, of covenant. They are promised to one another. And, and this is it. They are living together now. They are united physically, um, as well as just being kind of covenanted and promised to one another. They are now living together. And that is it, a, a marriage of permanence. We read in Revelation 21 verse 3 this, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. <coughs> Excuse me. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. That is where things are headed. A uniting of Jesus and the church where all things are made new, where God's heart that has beat throughout scripture and throughout history of I will be their God and they will be my people. That's where we're headed. We are going to be united with him after the wedding feast. That's it forever. A new heaven and a new earth 
with God, eternal life with him. So that's the story between Jesus and the church, the groom and the bride. Can you see the trajectory, how it follows that first century Jewish custom? So where do we reside in that now? Where are we at that point in history? Well, obviously, there's lots to look forward to, isn't there? But right now, if you have said yes to Jesus, if you have put your trust in him, if you have said, yes, Jesus, I want to be in a relationship with you, then you are betrothed. You are part of the church that is betrothed to Jesus. That's where we're at now. If you've said yes to him, and that's why the betrothal thing, we, we're we in covenant with God. We have a relationship with him. We, we are contracted to him. There is intimacy. There is relationship. There is commitment. Absolutely. But it's also why, I don't know about you, I don't know if you ever find yourself kind of thinking, I, I love God. I, I love my relationship I have with him. This is great. But but I feel like there's more. There should be more than this. Like it's not it's not fully and complete yet. Yes, I love it and I can know God intimately, but it feels like there's more to come here. <laughs> if you ever feel that way, that's because that's absolutely right. We are in the betrothal stage. We are in a covenant relationship with him, but we are awaiting a day when we will be united physically and spiritually with him we will be in the same place we will abide with him in person forever that's why if you sometimes have a pang of you know i've got a relationship with god but i feel like there should be more than this that's because there is more to come so if you have said yes to jesus then you are betrothed you are part of the church the bride of christ that is betrothed to jesus covenanted to him If you haven't yet said yes to Jesus, and I'm coming in to land with this, then it's almost like Jesus, as the groom, is holding out his cup of wine to you. And he's saying this, he's saying, look, I have taken the initiative here. I have come down from my home to your home. Why? Because I love you and I want a relationship with you. I want to enter into a new covenant with you. I have paid the price. I have given up my life so that I can have a relationship with you and you can have a relationship with me where you can be known and loved and you can know and love me too. Jesus is holding out the cup saying, I've done that. I've paid the price. Now, will you enter into relationship with me? Will you enter into a new covenant with me? The amazing thing is that Jesus makes that offer to every single one of us. No matter what we've done in life, no matter how far we might feel from God, no matter how much of a disappointment or a wreck we believe we have made of life, Jesus is holding out a cup to you and me. And he's saying, will you drink it? And by drinking it, will you, you will be showing me that you're saying yes to my proposal to enter into a new covenant relationship with you. And so I'm going to wrap things up there. I'm going to hand back to John, who is going to lead us through as we share communion together.